Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the story behind this 18 karat Bond nugget is a man I always expect to talk. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. (laughs) And golden words he will pour in your ear, but his lies can't disguise what you fear. It's the man with the Midas touch. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. Quite good, that one. you spent the weekend on these, haven't you? I can tell the difference when you've actually got some effort here. <laughs> Relevant so, to the film as well. Good. <laughs> so this is the Bond film that changed changed it all. It's the, um, it's, it's the one that really launched James Bond into the stratosphere, um, considered by many to be one of the very, very best. Considered by us, I think, to be one of the very, very best. What do you guys think? Well, spoiler. We've not, we've not <laughs> wait till the end till we rank it. But yes, it's very good. It's all right. Oh, here we go. Oh, no, no, no. no golden it's, eye. It's, <laughs> well, we're not pitting against that, but it is, you know, it's excellent. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's the one we went, went to, we chose to go and watch together last year. So for a reason, right? Yeah. And it, I've watched it obviously very recently again for this. And um, something I always forget about golfing is how short it is. It's one of the shortest James Bond films, um, mm. but it really makes... Th- the most of its of its runtime it just never stops moving does it absolute joy mm. it's been quite interesting as well with this one um having done dr no and from russia with love quite recently mm. um noticing the progression in how everything has moved uh in the behind the scenes stuff for for this one just this one is really james bond operating on a on another level isn't it um mm. In, in every sort of um, in every sense. So let's kick off uh, with a, a brief synopsis as provided for by the 007 website. So James Bond is assigned to investigate one of the wealthiest men in the world, Auric Goldfinger, who's suspected of smuggling England's gold reserves. 
when his secretary Jill sleeps with Bond after Bond catches him cheating at cards, Goldfinger has her killed by smothering her with gold paint. The dead girl's sister is also killed when she follows Goldfinger to Switzerland and attempts revenge. Bond is captured by Goldfinger's huge manservant Objob, Objob, and almost killed by a deadly laser beam. Drugged, he finds himself on Goldfinger's private jet being flown to America by Pussy Galore. Bond wins over Pussy and, ha- and she helps thwart Goldfinger's plot to rob Fort Knox. So that's that's basically the, uh, the, the summary. Uh, is that fair? Was accurate. Yep. You've, pro- what, you've missed a few happens. bits out, but I think everyone who's listening to this has probably seen it. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. So let's kick things off with a look back to 1964. So 1964, this was a time where spy movies, this whole spy genre, was pretty big deal. There was a lot of spy films bouncing around over that time. Um, And, of course, it was the third Bond film. Um, And the first two Bond films, by all accounts, were very successful. Fairly low budgets that made quite a bit of money at the cinema. So this Goldfinger was a big deal. The... Um, MGM were obviously very keen to make the third one uh, because it was a pretty much a, a, a done deal. It, you kind of knew it was going to be big based on the response that those other films have got. And the spy genre was showing no sign of settling down. So over that period, the whole obsession around the Cold War um, and the fact that mass media was becoming ever more prevalent. So... Um, people had a much greater interest in the world of spies because it was on on the news all the time and it was a big deal. People were really into spies. So this was peak spy time. And in 1964, there were quite a few spy films that that came about. Um, I I had a look through the main ones. There was probably about a dozen big ones that came out over over the year. But the in 1964, probably the two biggest ones, um, aside from Goldfinger, were uh, Hot Enough for June, which is, I think, a Dirk Bogard spy film. I've never seen it, um, but it, w- it was a pretty big deal at the time. And then Carry On Spying came out in 1964. So if there's ever a sign that a genre has reached the peak, it's if Carry On <laughs> send it up. Uh, um, so the previous two films uh, Doctor No and From Russia With Love they made um, 440 uh, well Doctor No made 440 million dollars From Russia With Love made 576 million dollars uh, that's in just adjusted for inflation so pretty big big amounts of money in by today's standards um, so yeah pretty pretty surefire thing that Goldfinger was going to take that and, and you know take it to the next level so it also meant that they were looking at putting a bit more money behind it uh the top films that came out in uh, 1964 not many spy films in there really the number one was mary poppins and number two was my fair lady goldfinger came in at number three um and then a couple of other ones that popped up in that time oh uh, from Russia with love because obviously they still run previous films um for quite a while back in those days uh, the only other one which is probably of note is the pink panther which is kind of a similarish genre um, to, to Golden uh, Goldfinger at the time, not Goldeneye. Um, and then the Oscar for Best Picture went to My Fair Lady. So there you go. That's 1964 for you. So yeah, as mentioned, uh, after the success of the previous two films, um, 
uh, the studio execs behind uh, the films at United Artists gave Goldfinger a budget of $3 million. Uh, that was enough money to have made Dr. No and From Russia With Love. So you can see that they're on an exponential growth um, at this stage. And yeah, that's it. I mean, you can see in this film, I think, uh, an expansion of, what am I trying to say, uh, it's it's a lot more, much more ambitious film. Let's just put it that way. Uh, it's got great locations. The 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 interior set designs are sensational. It's got the gadget car, all that sort of stuff, which just wouldn't have been possible in the previous two films. So they put that money that they were given up on screen. Yeah. So the the director of the first two, Terence Young, he begins pre production on Goldfinger in 1963. However. Um, there is a dispute that breaks out and it's it's regarding pay. We seem to always be talking about pay disputes when, you know, people get to a certain point, they've done a few and they want they want to be uh, rewarded for the good work they've put in. And he wanted a percentage of the film profits. The producers didn't budge. And so he went on to film The Adventures of Mole Flanders instead. So that left them looking for a director. So Broccoli and Saltzman, they looked at somebody who had turned down Dr. No. A man we all know very well, Guy Hamilton, popped in. And um, uh, Hamilton already knew Fleming, so there's a link to the Bond world at that point. Both of them were involved in um, intelligence uh, for the Royal Navy during World War II. Um, And... Also, Guy Hamilton was apparently a low handicap golfer, so he also instantly got on with Sean as well. So he had an interesting and quite an easy route into the Bond franchise. Uh, apparently, he was a, a director that shot with a lot of pace and style, uh, and also he's, he had a bit of a flair for comedy. And these were areas that Broccoli and Saltzman wanted to move into. There were various thoughts around the previous two films, especially From Russia of Love, that it was a little bit more on the espionage side and a little bit less on the mainstream humorous side. So um, Guy Hamilton was a sort of response to that to come in and make it even more accessible to, 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 the, to the public as well and, and help to build up those, um, those ticket sales. Previously, he'd made a lot, quite a few films, uh, The Cold It's Story uh, and Inspector Calls, uh, Devil's Disciple and The Best of Enemies. And... Um, one of the other things that they said about him is that he he was brought in to make Bond less of a sort of superhero. Uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, in Doctor No and From Russia of Love, Bond is almost he's a bit he's kind of invincible, and the enemies in it don't really have as much threat because you feel that Bond can do anything. And and one of the things that Guy Hamilton was charged with was to make the villains a a little bit more of a risk so that Bond was no longer a Superman and he it was there was more of a danger um, within the film. So there you go, Guy Hamilton. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Goldfinger because uh, in this film he's introduced very early on and after Bond bests him at the, uh, at the golf course, he then basically then defeats Bond a number of times and Bond is then his prisoner. Yeah, he's, constant, he's constantly um, having slip-ups, isn't he, Bond, in this one? Um, yeah. And I did read somewhere, I don't know how accurate it is, but that Sean didn't like that because he wanted Bond to be like a Superman and he didn't want him to be flawed. Um, but obviously, probably, I don't know if that 
had any impact on him later on in his decision to to, to leave the series, but um, definitely doesn't show in this film. He doesn't look like he's unhappy about the the way that Bond's portrayed. No, uh, Sean Connery's fantastic in this film. He is. Mm. I think he, he evolves from playing James Bond to being Sean Connery as James Bond. I don't even know if that makes sense, but like, it, there's just a, a an effortlessness to him uh, in this film. Um, mm, the yes. whole idea of him moving like a panther, I don't, you know, I don't see it that much in Doctor No and From Russia with Love, but in this, and also the suits that he wears, he just looks absolutely sensational in this. Mm. Um, I think there's an awareness, you know, he's seen the first two, how successful they've been, and he's there's much more confidence for him. Not that he wasn't yeah. confident initially, but you can definitely see it now. He's oozing it. It's the same thing. I don't think it really happens with Roger because Roger just oozes it from the start and not in the same way. But we talk about Piers Brosnan and how a couple of films in, he starts to have a bit more confidence. Mm. Unfortunately, he didn't have a Goldfinger <laughs> as his third film, so it, it doesn't quite work as well. But um, yeah, he's definitely, uh, yeah, you can definitely see that confidence and sort of relaxed style. He, he probably mm. had faced quite a lot of his demons by this point and knew what he was doing. So writing the script, they had originally thought they were going to do Honor Majesty's Secret Service after From Russia With Love but um, there wasn't enough time between shooting that last film to, to this one to move go to the Swiss Alps and there be enough snow to shoot the snow scenes in Honor Majesty's Secret Service so they switched it to Goldfinger instead. Richard Maybaum was brought back in, he'd done the first two and he delivered a draft early in uh, 63 um, this was just six six seven months after from russia with love had been released in cinema so they were working very very quickly stuff that he added at this point um included the the the, the ben-hur style bladed wheels on the on the db5 the laser room uh, the laser in the in, in the torture scene odd jobs hat and in this early version pussy galore was going to be the one that was painted gold uh, and she was going to do a burlesque dance for the mafia but that was changed later on there was a report as well that Terence Young had started working on the screenplay before he left the project. Uh, I can't find any evidence of that. Um, and there's also reports that Berkeley Mather did an uncredited rewrite as well, and he delivered a second draft in September of 63. Talking about the approach to it uh, May, uh, and how it differed to the previous film, Richard Maybound said, Whereas Dr. No was a mystery and From Russia With Love was a straight suspense story, Goldfinger is what I call a jewel, Bond versus Goldfinger. It is not, I repeat, not a story about a robbery. And talking about that robbery, one of the things that he changed from the book to the film is the idea of Fort Knox being robbed to Fort Knox being irradiated with um, uh, a nuclear bomb. And that's a, a twist that we've all talked about before being a great uh, change to the storyline. So following that, Paul Dane was brought in um, because Harry and Sean Connery felt that Maybound's first draft was too American. And Paul Dane, who we talked about at great length uh, in, a, in a previous episode, so refer back to that. But he, he his major contribution plot-wise was adding the pre-title sequence. And that's the bit um, in Fontainebleau with the, um, the bird on the head and the wetsuit coming out of the water, which if you listen to our Casino Royale 67 episode, uh, with Jeremy Duns, he says he's based on a true life story. So uh, that's an interesting one to go back to. Now, Connery didn't like uh, Paul Dane's uh, draft, so Richard Maybaum returned. Guy Hamilton has been on record to say that he thinks Paul Dane was actually lucky to share a credit, saying that it, the, the film is more um, a Richard Maybaum uh, script than a Paul Dane script. He said Paul Dane wrote for Bond as if it was written for Bob Hope and not Sean Connery. 
Um, one thing that Dane is credited with adding was to add the idea of Bond discovering Jill's body covered in paint, uh, in gold paint. And then also he gave Odd Job his superhuman strength. So despite Connery's concerns about Dane's script, Maybaum and, and Dane did c- contribute more to the story. And someone else who was brought in was Wolf Mankiewicz, who, if you remember, was the guy who introduced Harry Saltzman to Cubby Broccoli and set this whole thing in motion. And one of the things that he suggested was putting the corpse in the boot of the car and then dropping the car into the uh, the crusher. So just talk just to just to round things off. This is a quote from Maybaum. He said, "From Russia with Love is my favourite, but Goldfinger is right there. I thought From Russia with Love was as far as we really could go, spoofing a little bit, but also staying real and keeping a frame of reference. But Goldfinger is the most successful as I see it." And he ex- he sort of uh, compared his writing on that uh, on Goldfinger to getting a strike in bowling. So that's it, that's the script. Yeah, so um, in terms of the the crew, they got in, I mean, it's mostly uh, getting the t- getting the band back together kind of thing. Uh, so John Barry's back to compose the music. Uh, it's edited by Peter Hunt and the cinematography by Ted Moore. Um, but Ken Adam, who he'd missed out on from Russia with Love, he's back as production designer and putting in some incredible work yet again, especially with Fort Knox. And remember, no one's seen the inside of Fort Knox, and uh, he, he created that fantastic set. And also, um, stunt coordinator Bob Simmons is back as well, and he was a major part of choreographing the fight uh, between Bond and Oddjob at the end of the film. But yeah, Bob Simmons is all over this film. Uh, yeah. Some terrific, terrific stunts in it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I, th- I think he probably does a few. I think he's the guy that Bond fights in the cell, um, you know, when he tempts the guy in. I think that might be Bob Simmons in a wig. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's, uh, he's terrific. I mean, there's some amazing behind the scenes. Um, the, there's commentaries that you can listen to on Goldfinger, which I would heartily recommend. And there's also a really good Criterion Collection commentary as well, um, mm-hmm. if you want to learn more about the Bob Simmons stuff, because the, that, the stunt stuff's all over there, but um, we'll only be touching upon it here. Well, there's a few returning cast as well. Um, it's only the third film, so there's not a lot of returning cast, but you've got obviously Sean Connery, as well as Bernard Lee, um, Lois Maxwell, and Desmond Llewellyn as Q. And I believe this is the first time they refer to him as Q. Um, so he's they've clearly realised that he's a, a, a character they want to continue to be in the series. Um, and his, his, his role in this changes a little bit as well because he ceases to be sort of a... You know, he walks in from Mushroom of Love and he's more like just a guest that comes in and gives him something. Whereas now he's actually... They've, they've started to build the Q style and the relationship that he has with with Sean Connery so I think it's it's definitely a, a film where Q is the first time Q really shines I think and it sets the framework for um the the rest of his appearances really yeah that scene in the in, in his lab is iconic and every single one afterwards has been trying to recapture that magic I guess hasn't it yeah well it's it, it's a good scene because like many things in Goldfinger, it just gets the balance right. So he gets really interesting, useful equipment. It's not daft equipment. It's really useful and he does use it later on. Um, but also there's still an element of it being sort of serious as well. Like it doesn't turn into full comedy like he often does in the, some of the later films. So yeah, I think it just hit the, the mark right. And it is, there's not many times where he does it 
that well, if, if ever, in the rest of the series. So new cast, uh, we've got Auric Goldfinger uh, is the main villain and a, he is played by Gert Frobe um, and we talked about him on our episode G uh, kind of briefly. I think we're all in agreement. It's one of our favourite Bond villains. I think he's one of the, I think he, is he the last one that does his plot purely out of greed for money? It's the last one really where it's just a pure heist, isn't it? Um, it There's yeah, no gets MacGuffin really. There's no driving force it's just he's got to get Goldfinger yeah yeah so for the title role the producers looked at an actor called Victor Buono and you'll know him as King Tut in the Batman TV series do you remember him no Um, (laughs) what do you mean you'll remember (laughs) honestly if you google a picture of King Tut in the Batman TV series you'll see it and you'll instantly go that guy I don't know how much you watched the Batman TV series but uh, you'll know him because he's very memorable is this you talking about the one with Adam West yes Adam West right okay uh, yeah. Okay, and another actor that they auditioned was Theodore Bickel, who had been in My Fair Lady, but they found that he didn't have enough menace. Orson Welles is rumoured to have been pursued, but was to be too expensive. Obviously, he later mm-hmm. returned in 67's Casino Royale. But yeah, Cubby was the man who um, favoured Gert Frobe, and he said that he'd seen him in a, in a German film called It Happened in Broad Daylight, which um, he played a child molester. He was actually quite a controversial figure, and this is a well-trodden story um, about Gert Frobe. But um, basically, when he was promoting Goldfinger, he admitted to an Israeli newspaper that he had been a card-carrying Nazi prior to World War II. Um, And it turned out he joined the Nazi party in 1929 when he was 16. So as soon as they found out that this had um, happened, the film was banned in Israel um, because obviously in Israel um, they had a, uh, basically anyone who had been a Nazi, their films couldn't be shown there. There was a blanket ban. So they pulled uh, Goldfinger from cinemas and it's just a shame because it was actually doing really well in the in the box office there. But the Israeli film censorship uh, decided to backtrack um, because it turned out after some investigating that Gert Frobe had actually left the Nazi party in 1937 which is two years before Hitler had invaded Poland he was also uh, when World War II started he was actually conscripted into the army um, but while he was in the army he was punished for helping to distribute anti-Nazi pamphlets and there was one final thing is that Gert Frobe claimed to have helped a Jewish woman during the war. And this actually turned out to be completely true. There was a, a someone that um, Gert Frobe uh, had helped to obtain uh, food stamps during the war and had helped basically. It, it was down to him that this, this Jewish lady had survived World War Two. So um, the lady who he'd helped uh, said, I think he was a decent person, but not a hero. Um but yeah, after that, the film was then returned to cinemas in Israel. Uh, as you know, he was struggling. English wasn't his first language, so he struggled a little bit with the um, the script and would deliver his lines phonetically, which is fine. But Guy Hamilton said that it was just too slow. You can hear his real voice in uh, clips from the film that appeared in the trailer, um, if you want to hear what he sounds like. And it is a bit of a garbled um, pronunciation. And he had actually been voice coached on set by Nicky van der Zeel, who we know dubbed Ursula Andress and a number of other actors on uh, the James Bond films. So the actor who dubbed him was a man called Michael Collins. And describing um, his relationship to the film, he said it was Gert Frobe's performance. And he said it was like a crossword puzzle. He said Mr. Frobe knew all the answers, but his vocal pencil was blunt. And I just outlined what he said. So there you go. And there's a really good, interesting uh, interview online with Michael Collins talking about playing Goldfinger. Um, 
obviously Gert Frey was to return to Eon to work with Cubby on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang later on down the line. Um, but he's just absolutely sensational as a villain in this film, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and also the dubbing is just yeah. incredible. It's yeah. Just, you, uh, what, you would never know. Would never know. That I love the line that he delivers when uh, after the golf game where he says uh, about being in trouble with the club and he goes, Mr. Bond, I own the club. And the way he does it, he's just like wiping his eyes. Like he just says it completely nonchalantly and it's really menacing. I just yeah. love it. He's just great. He's just a great physical presence. And I'm glad they stuck with him and dubbed him rather than completely changing him for someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so his right hand man, our job is played by Harold Sakata, who uh, was born in 1920. He was uh, an Olympic, an American Olympic weightlifter. And he actually got a silver medal for the US in 1948. And so after that, he went on to have a wrestling career. And apparently, Guy Hamilton saw him wrestling in Australia. And so he had him in in his mind. But also, uh, Harry Saltzman and Cubby had seen seen him wrestling and and it seemed that his build was perfect for the character and and just that sort of the the vibe he was giving off and that's what they wanted him to to do that he'd never acted before he'd just done the wrestling you know part of acting but luckily enough the character is relatively mute i think he's only got he's only say aha is that all he says and when he finds the golf ball doesn't he yeah (laughs) yeah and so that that is the role that he would go on to be known for. He also uh, did the role of Odd Job again in some TV uh, adverts for Vicks uh, cough syrup. And the whole premise of the advert is uh, it shows Odd Job. He's got a cough and he's destroying everything. These are on YouTube, by the way. You have a look because it's ridiculous. Um, he's just smashing everything to bits until his wife comes along and gives him some some of this cough syrup and it stops and then the wife realises that he's caused havoc with this cough. But yeah, I mean, again, I mean, this is paired with Goldfinger. These, what, what a double act. It would have been perfect for a, a COVID campaign. <laughs> yeah, what, you cough and start smashing things up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what I love about Odd Job is how uh, he, he seems to really enjoy his job. Yeah, he's just got a real like look of like enjoyment of fighting against Bond. Like there's that bit in in Fort Knox where they're squaring off each uh, off, off with each other, and he just has mm-hmm. a big smile on his face. Yeah, and that's yeah. what you want from a henchman, isn't it? Someone that's completely like who completely stands out from the crowd, um, yeah. who like just seems completely out of place, but also is completely menacing, but also has a bit of fun about them as well. I think that's something that they've struggled with a little bit in replicating uh, in future films. I think someone I think of is uh, on a top. I think she's the only one that's really ever lived up to mm-hmm. um, that sort yeah, of presence good, yeah. because yeah. she's someone, again, who loves her job. Um, well, I, well, I think with, with Goldfring and Old Job, they hit the nail on the head because when you're doing villains in films, the, what you don't want a backstory. You don't want an, a reason why they're like they are. And both Goldfinger and Oddjob, they are just complete, like, Goldfinger's just a baddie that's obsessed with money. There's no back, backstory to him. That's it. Yeah. And you can't, if you if you go into more, any more detail about him and 
you know, why he's like that. He suddenly loses any sort of menacing quality. He's he, he's not really a character. He's just a concept of, of evil, really, and, and greed. And Oddjob's the same. He's just, you know, he, he, he's only interest in life is doing his job. And that's it. There's no backstory to it. And most, I think the films, the Bond films that really get it wrong is when they try and develop the character because then you start to lose any menacing quality to it. And they, and, and they just get it right with Goldfinger. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny you say about the odd job really loving his job because the dedication was also there with Harold Sakata. During Odd Job's death scene, he actually burnt his hand quite badly because he was holding on to the the um, the metal and he he was just holding on and on and on until Guy Hamilton called cut. That's so, good. <laughs> that is dedication, isn't it? Sign just... of a good actor. <laughs> yeah, get the take. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to carry on until you say cut. <laughs> Um, so speaking of great characters we also have one of the whole of the Bond series most revered Bond girls and that is Pussy Galore not only for the name but also she's just a fantastic character and when I was talking about Goldfinger and Objob being very simple concepts Pussy Galore isn't she's actually quite a rounded character which is what you need for somebody who's going to turn against uh, the person she's working for and side with Bond and if that doesn't happen in a Bond film and you haven't got a reason for them actually you know seeing their character and seeing them turn their turn their um, views on their employer it just doesn't work so well but uh, Pussy Claw is just a fantastic character and Honor Blackman um, plays her she was brought in um, because apparently Guy Hamilton saw her in The Avengers obviously a very similar character in in the fact that you know she's like a cat burglar type character who um can fight and all these sort of things she so the the character in the films she's obviously working for goldfinger throughout it she's got pussy glows flying circus which are play a big part in the the operation glance grand slam and eventually bond turns her to his side through quite unnecessary advances i think we'd probably say it's not the not the most um, uh, modern of ways to depict Bond in a film, but yeah. So she turns she turns sides and she helps him out and actually uh, switches the um, gas to be uh, sleeping gas instead of um, actually killing the Fort Knox army. But in the um, books, she's slightly different. Um, in the novel, in from 1959, she is apparently uh, she runs an organised crime gang. She's was brought up as a trapeze artist. Um, and she had a group of performing cat women, uh, which were called Pussy Claw and her Abro Cats. And um, they ended up becoming a bunch of cat burglars. And apparently, and I've not read, you've, you've read Goldfinger, haven't you, Butler? Yeah. So um, Pussy Claw's sexuality in Goldfinger is actually quite, it's, it's actually mentioned in the book. There's no mention of it in the, in, in the film. It's just hinted at it's an area of dispute because it's never really suggested that she is actually a lesbian in um, in Goldfinger. So yeah, she, um, she's one of the most well-respected Bond girls that really, I think in most sort of polls for best Bond girls, she normally comes up second behind Ursula Andrus. But apparently they had a lot of problems with the name of the character through the censors because the censors didn't want a character called Pussy Glore. Remember that in the 60s, taboo words were very they, they, they it was very hard to get them into a film and goldfinger was not 
like an X-rated film. It was a, it's a film that was designed for families. So they had real trouble getting the name past the censors. But there are two reasons that they actually managed to get it by in the end. One was that it's already a, a name that featured in the book. So it was it was actually a name that existed. So so they kind of relented to that. But also at the royal premiere, um, Honor Blackman met Prince Philip. And in the newspapers, I think a lot of newspapers the next day, the, the titles of the headlines were uh, things like Pussy and the Prince. Um, and because it was in all the headlines and Prince Philip had met Pussy Galore, the census also kind of went, well, if she can meet the prince and that's okay and nobody seems to mind because apparently everyone found that quite funny, it was okay. So they stuck with the name Pussy Galore. But yeah, she's, a, she's fantastic and she's, she's a brilliant. She's slightly older than what you'd normally expect from uh, Bond girls at the time and it really does show and work well to Sean's credit in the film because it just they just play off each other so nicely. Um, brilliant, brilliant Bond girl. And she's so confident and assured, isn't she? Mm. Um, and this, uh, something else I learned about um, Anna Blackman is she actually learned, she was very, very close to getting her pilot's licence. That's how dedicated she was to the role. Mm. Um, and it was she was called away to do another job, otherwise she would have passed her... Um, uh, got her yeah got a pilot's license which is just un- unreal isn't it really mm. um yeah other bond girls so you got jill and telly masterson um so very quickly shirley eaton who played jill masterson uh, the one that gets painted in gold she was actually a very established actor at the time with 21 films under her belt and so on that for that reason she gets equal billing with honor blackman in the film despite actually being a much smaller part because she was a bigger actor at the time. So um, when we get to the letter M, uh, we'll talk a bit more about um, uh, Jill Masterson and, and, and Shirley Eaton. Um, but interestingly, I found out that she was also dubbed by Nikki van der Zeel, which is surprising because I thought Nikki did actors, non-English actors, but yeah, she did uh, Shirley Eaton as well. Uh, Shirley Eaton said, producers called my agent to have an interview with me asking, they asked if I mind being naked and painted gold, to which I replied with a smile, fine, if it's done tastefully. you got Tanya Mallet as Tilly Masterson. Uh, again, we'll cover her under the letter M, but um, Tanya Mallet was a model who had screen tested for From Russia With Love. The producers had remembered her and invited her back to audition for the role of Jill's sister, Tilly. Peter Hunt, the, uh, the editor, uh, he's a bit scathing about Tanya he said that she's not a very good actress, but actually he wasn't far off the mark because it was her first and last acting role and she returned to modelling. Um, she said, originally I was offered £50 a week to do Goldfinger, which I managed to push up to £150, but even so I earned more than that in a day modelling. So the six months I worked or was retained to work on Goldfinger were a real sacrifice. I'm with Peter Hunt on this one. She, I, yeah. I love everything about Goldfinger and I, I often say that it's like a flawless film, but... For Tilly Masterson. You found, found the floor. It's the one floor. It's just, I, I, every I, in my head, I can just remember scenes that she's in just thinking, oh, they just fall so flat. It's such a strange character. I, for I'm, I'm, playing, play against. I'm playing her dialogue in my head. And I'm thinking, oh, it's stilted, isn't it? It's wooden. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's just very, very odd um, responses to mm-hmm. what things that are happening. Yeah. You've got uh, Dink, uh, played by Margaret Nolan. We did a bit on Dink on a previous episode. She wasn't a meant. She wasn't originally going to appear in the film, only in the titles as the gold painted body. But she only agreed to do those if she got a proper a role in the film. Um, she was meant to go on a publicity tour for Goldfinger afterwards, but she actually pulled out. She said they were quite pissed off because they'd already spent loads of money on me. It was because of what was going on politically at the time, and I wanted to do more serious stuff and to be taken 
uh, and be taken as a serious actress. Also, my husband didn't want me going away for two years as well. It meant touring the world. So I turned it down. And it's funny because, as I say, I've never been able to live it down. In a way, I might as well have just done it. <laughs> so we'll talk a bit more about uh, Margaret Nolan's role in the film when we get to the titles. And then finally, one more, Najarejin as Bonita, the lady from the pre-title sequence. She had already been in From Russia With Love as Karen Bay's girlfriend. So she's one of those mm. myth- mythical double appearance actors, two, uh, two parts. Yeah, so that's the, the ladies of the Bond film. Yep, so we've got some allies. Um, of course, we have Cess Linda as Felix Leiter, who is Bond's CIA counterpart, who we've seen before was played by Jack Lord previously. Um, they wanted him back, but he wanted too much money and he wanted a bigger role. So they decided to go with somebody else. And Cess Linder's actually the only actor who, who was on location in Miami. He was yeah brought on board to play Felix Leiter and I think he does a good job. I, th- I think it's quite nice. I like the where they're um, with the binoculars at the farm. That's a good scene. He's a memorable uh, Felix Leiter, I think. Yeah, yeah. But probably helps that the film's good, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he just works well with Connery. You could see them being friends and working together. He, it reminds me of the the Daniel Craig um, mm. Bond Felix Leiter relationship in that you actually think, oh, they could work together, and they probably do speak to each other outside of this. Whereas some of the other Felix Leiters, they're just like he, he's, he's just met them once and just he's tagged just on, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have. Um, Austin Willis as Mr. Simmons. So that's the the opponent, Goldfinger's opponent, when they're playing cards uh, in Miami. Richard Vernon as Colonel Smithers, who is the Bank of England uh, official. Now, funnily enough, he uh, how old do you think he was when he filmed this? He is surprisingly young, yes. I seem to remember. <laughs> He's 39. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> and he so looks he, about 60 yeah well he made a career of this because he was prematurely balding and greying so he just played lords and military types from who were you know while he was still in his 30s he was playing these characters in their 60s um, and most famous probably for Slarty Bartfast in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, and then Jerry Duggan as Hawker who finally is, here we go yes this, I knew you'd want this one <laughs> can you do the impression <laughs> No, I'm not doing the impression. Do you? I was trying to work out of my head how he says it. The Arnold Palmer line. <laughs> Fantastic line. Perfectly delivered. So he is Bond's golf caddy. Um, he was an Irish-born Australian character actor. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the accent I always thought it was put on and forced, but that's that's his... That, that's what he made his sort of... He made small roles in films and TV, and that was his sort of selling point it was that drawl and that strange rich accent that he's got what a legend (laughs) (laughs) i really he's an excellent character if if mgm are going to do spin-off series let's do hawker (laughs) what was what was his job (laughs) he was a caddy so he was actually just a caddy or was was he not like an agent that was helping him out no he's just a caddy isn't he just Uh, yeah bonds just got a caddy that he just took with him to see a world and very dangerous. <laughs> or he works for the club. Oh, he could work for the club. You seem very friendly with Bob. But in which case, it? in which case, Goldfinger is his boss. Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking it up now. But anyway, I think we need to bring him back. Well, we'll be Hawker. doing our special on him um, very soon. <laughs> Two part special. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so let's move on to production. Uh, as you've already mentioned, BJ, uh, the uh, some of the shooting happened in Miami. So although they actually did principal photography in Miami, very few people actually went there. Um, the first scene with Goldfinger is at the Fontaine Bleu Hotel um, in Miami Beach. Um, but the only people that were actually uh, over there filming were um, Hamilton, Broccoli, Ken Adam um, and Ted Moore. And as you as you rightly say, Linda, uh, who played Lighter, was the only actual actor uh, on location in Miami. And you can see his scenes specifically where he's following around odd job around the streets of Miami uh, and the outskirts. Um, so not a lot going on there. Uh, Connery couldn't travel to, to Florida at the time because he was shooting Marnie uh, somewhere else in the US over that period. So yeah, just a lot of sort of nice scene setting uh, um, parts of the film are there, but all of the other stuff was actually filmed in Pinewood. Yes, at Pinewood. Um, so lots to talk about here, but... Um uh, one thing we won't be talking about here is the Aston Martin DB5. I know it plays a huge part in this film, but we did a whole episode on Aston Martin. Um, so it's worth referring back to that if you want more detail on the Aston Martin. And honestly, you could do a 25-part series on the Aston Martin DB5. But let's just say... We will not be doing that. We will not. <laughs> uh, but that was designed, uh, tricked out by Ken Adam, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the the gadgets were done by a guy called John Steers. Um, there were two of them um, let's just say that but yeah we did a whole episode on, on Aston Mine so go back to that and listen to to that but um, yeah as you mentioned Connery was away shooting another film so although the production on the film began in January 64 Connery didn't actually come to Pinewood until March and Harry uh, this is a fun story he visited the set on the first day of filming at Pinewood and to celebrate the first day of filming, he smashed a bottle of champagne over a ca- camera as a gesture of celebration for the shoot. Guy Hamilton said everyone was stunned. And that's why Harry Saltzman isn't welcome on film sets. <laughs> um, so some of the memorable sets created by Ken Adam to, for the film at Pinewood include uh, the whole pre-title sequence uh, in Fontainebleau that is the South American city where Bond uh, sets off the bomb that was all shot in the paddock tanks that's all on location uh, at Pinewood as you mentioned they recreated the Miami Hotel on a soundstage at Pinewood so you do see um, Felix Leiter there but everyone else is at Pinewood so that's quite amazing you've got the Bank of England set You've got Goldfinger's estate and factory and the laser table. Uh, this, I mean, this is, and you know, I know you mentioned Fort Knox, but I think this is Ken Adams' crowning achievement, which is Goldfinger's wood-panelled, what they call rumpus room, where you've got the moving snooker table and the map and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, terrific. And something about um, the way that the sets were done, Guy Hamilton said that um, part of the secret uh, of the James Bond films was that they never shot on the same set twice. So they would build a hotel corridor like they did at uh, for Miami, but they would only shoot one scene there and then they'd move to somewhere else. So the films are always moving forward. They're never going backwards and reusing sets, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Hmm. Around Pinewood, they used Black Park for the car chase involving the Aston Martin and uh, Goldfinger. They used a place called RF North Holt for the airports. Southend Airport was also used for the scene where Goldfinger flies to Switzerland. And 
yeah just just to mention if you've ever been to Pinewood where where the car chase takes place um where he's driving around the factories that's basically just driving around the sound stages of Pinewood and one of the main roads through Pinewood on the on this on the surface is Goldfinger Avenue and that's where they shot Goldfinger so it's, it looks basically exactly the same so yeah that's basically it uh, so a lot of shot was shot at Pinewood so yeah the golf scene which is iconic in its own right that was shot at Stoke Park Club and that is in Stoke Poges in Buckinghamshire. And so filming began on April 30th for that, but they had five days of bad weather, and so they had to shoot some of the other scenes back at the studio. But um, in terms of the scene where Oddjob crushes the golf ball, Connery dismissed it and said it was bloody stupid. I bet that won't make it into the picture. Wow, how, how wrong. So in terms of Stoke Park now, there's a James Bond-themed bar bar at the course. Um, In 1908, it actually became the first UK country club ever. And it's been in another Bond film. Either of you know which one? Yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah. The the interior of Bond's hotel in Hamburg, where he finds Paris Carver dead. That is shot in, in the golf club. Guy Hamilton said... I was a keen golfer and therefore enjoyed the concept of the golf scene between Bond and Goldfinger. The challenge was to explain the rules of golf to the audience without being boring, because at that time there was no Tiger Woods and golf wasn't particularly popular. Dick Maybaum, like Ian Fleming, was also a golfer and we used to play together, so we had great fun writing that particular sequence. And another person who really got into golf at this point, so when Sean Connery was being moulded into Bond by Terence Young, he started dabbling with golf, but it was this that really was the cemented his love for golf. He said, it wasn't till I was taught enough golf to look as though I could outwit the accomplished golfer Gert Frobe in Goldfinger that I got the bug. I began to take lessons on a course near the Pinewood Film Studios and was immediately hooked on the game. And right up and for the rest of his life, he was mad about golf. So this really was a, a huge part of his life from this point on. And it's a, an excellent scene. Yeah, one of the all-time great um, mm-hmm. Bond film, Bond scenes, uh, definitely. Another scene that doesn't just go down in history for the for the film, but for cinema in general, and that's the the golden paint scene where we see Shirley Eaton lying on the bed covered in paint. Apparently, it took an hour and a half to apply apply the paint to her body, which. Uh, Eaton actually said wasn't a major problem she didn't really mind that what she didn't like was that afterwards it said she said it took her multiple Turkish baths to finally get it off so that was the bit that was annoying about having that much paint on her it's a really famous scene for many reasons but the crew realized that this scene was going to be really powerful at the point of doing it because they actually invited photographers to come in on the set and take lots of pictures of, of Shirley Eaton when she was lying on the bed and if you look up that picture on the internet there are many famous pictures of her lying on the bed not just the ones from the film so yeah amazing amazing sequence you might mention this later um brendan but the the music that plays over the top of that scene is also the it's very famous song and it was the one that sneaker pimps uh covered for uh six or used a sample of for six underground which i didn't realize until long after i was listening to that song um when it came out which is a fantastic fantastic tune so when you look at that scene you can hear that song in your head playing because it's just so memorable as a as, as a sequence 
But it, of course, it wasn't Shirley Eaton that actually appeared in the opening credits and in the marketing campaign as well. That was that was Margaret Nolan. Um, but yeah, amazing scene. And probably if you did a poll of the most memorable scenes in the history of cinema, you might have things like Jaws, but I'm fairly certain that would crop up on the list very, very high. Yeah, but John Barry's scoring that whole sequence is incredible. It's up and down. It's all over the place. He does such an amazing job. So careful. It's not lazy in any way, is it? It's just per- it's, it's done to the it's minute detail and just it's just timed brilliantly. Because it's one of those scenes where, you know, we talk about Bond going into a room and the Bond music's playing. This scene is there's not there's not much happening in this scene. And if you played it, if you saw that in like I don't know, a TV series like. Uh, detective series you walk in a room and you see somebody lying on the bed you might hear some like you know dark classical music but this elevates that music elevates that scene to be something more it's it's very it makes the scene seem like there's something really really strange going on when really you it it wouldn't necessarily be like that if you hadn't done the music so well so yeah it really does add to the sort of mystery of it and the and the darkness of it i think absolutely so from one iconic scene to another, another uh, great moment, which I think is completely inf- unforgettable. It's the laser table. And this was the first scene that Sean Connery and Gert Frobe shot together. So as I mentioned in the book, uh, Goldfinger threatens Bond uh, on a table but with a buzz- buzzsaw. But Richard Maybaum changes for a laser. And that was um, Harry's idea. Harry had suggested the idea of a laser beam to which uh, Guy Hamilton had said, What's a laser beam, Harry? He said, and he said, it's like a light, but you can see it on the moon. And I thought that was very interesting. But because we didn't know what it was, we didn't know what to use it for. And Dick Maybrown said, we should use it to cut gold because Mr. Goldfinger is knee deep in gold and that'll be a good use for it. And we could use it to cut off Bond's private parts instead of a circular saw, which was the standard thing. And that, of course, was a good idea. So Ken Adam was actually advised by a couple of Harvard scientists on how to design what the lasers should look like. And they are scientists who'd actually helped him with the water reactor in Dr. No as well. Now, do you know how they did the, the special effect for the table? Yes. yes. It annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a sheet of metal that had been cut in half and then welded back together by John Steers' team and then painted over. And then two special effects guys lie under the table one with a torch to point where to do the the blowtorch and then the technician Bert Luxford laid under there with the blowtorch and they burned it upwards moving closer to Sean and then the laser was added afterwards but no one obviously below the table could see know how close the laser was to Sean Connery's crotch um and so Sean Connery said that uh, he, he felt like he was properly in danger with that. And he said that Guy Hamilton took pleasure in making things difficult for me. This, I think I, I, I knew this and it annoys me, this explanation of it, because there's, there's, either, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that back in those days, nobody cared and you didn't have any sort of safety on sets or anything like that. But logic would suggest that if you were doing a thing like that, I mean, they could have put like a bit of metal underneath him or something that just protect him. But it sounds like they didn't even bother doing that. And I, and I just can't believe that if, they, if you were doing that and there was a risk that you might cut through a man, you wouldn't <laughs> add some sort of safety into it. Like, just just add, make him sit on something that protects him. But it's, they've made it sound like if they'd done it wrong, it would have been, they'd gone straight into him, which I just, I just can't believe that would have happened. Now, and also, why wasn't a stuntman on there? 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I, every time I hear that story, I just think that's just got to be one of these things that if you actually spoke to somebody who did it, they'd be like, nah, we had some safety stuff in there. Yeah, um, it's incredible. So lasers weren't like commonplace in 1964. And so there's that really, mm. uh, really nice piece of ex- exposition that Goldfinger does. Uh, you're looking at an industrial laser which admits an extraordinary light not found, not to be found in nature. It can project a spot on the moon or at closer range cut through solid metal. I will show you. That is just terrific screenwriting mm-hmm. uh, because no one knows what a laser is. But he's just told you. He's explained what it is, what it's going to do and how it's going to injure Bond. It's, it's fantastic. But and th- this day uh, was the day that when they were filming this is when Ian Fleming visited the set. And Guy Hamilton said he wasn't a well man. And as we will come to shortly, it wouldn't be long until he was actually dead. So, um, yeah, just an, an amazing set piece. Uh, and this, I think, is the is the set piece um, or the scene that caused Gert Frobe the most difficulties uh, with his English language, trying to say the word witticism, <laughs> which, um, I mean, it's hard enough to say as an English person who knows that word, let alone as a German. You know what's great about this? Go on. It's he's got a laser that he uses practically outside of this scene. It's it's great. That's great writing. You know, he's got a reason to have that laser. It's not it's just, just there for a reason. Yeah. For like for random, like die another day. Yeah. I <laughs> built a laser purely for this one purpose. It, yeah. On a table. For, for when Bond turns up. Yeah. Exactly. He uses it. He needs it for his gold. It's great. He's yeah. He's illustrating, uh, the, the, well, foreshadowing what's that, what actually happens. But I think that's that's a key to to golfing. Where this scene is perfect for much like the golf scene, but Goldfinger in this scene. He just doesn't care. He'll do anything. And he just walks off, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll just leave you to die in this laser. Mm. And the only reason he comes back is because Bond's sort of at his last straw. He just says, comes yeah. up with something. But he, he couldn't care less. If Bond gets killed by that, he, he wouldn't be bothered. He would just carry on with his day and do, yeah. do it. And that's the beauty, whereas a lot of other Bond villains wouldn't be like that. They'd, they'd, they'd you know, they'd draw it out and they would be emotionally involved in it in some way that they really hate Bond. Doesn't hate Bond in the slightest. Could care less yeah. about him. Yeah, in the book, it's a bit of a plot hole because at this point he then hires James Bond um, to be to work for him, um, but actually by taking him hostage, it's much more interesting and adds to the level of threat, doesn't it? Because Bond as a hostage is much better, and then Bond as an undercover employee. Yeah, and um, it's nice yeah. to see Bond sweating in this. He's actually like mm. he he doesn't know what to do. He's really clutching at straws to get him get himself out of this. Whereas in he wouldn't have done in the previous two films. He'd have just, you know, been felt relaxed about it from from the start. The last time he sweated was when there was a spider after him. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and they always talk about how um, you know there always has to be a bump in the script along the way, and this is definitely one of them. You don't, you do not know. You put Bond in this impossible situation. You do not know how he is going to get himself out of it, and it happens quite a few times in this film, mm. and it throws you a surprise. Yeah, it's just terrific. Fantastic music as well. Very similar to the mm. the, the golden painted scene. This that it really does add to the tension. Yeah. So off to Switzerland, and they spent five days in Switzerland, and it was the actual the final part of the shoot, and it was completed on July eleventh, nineteen sixty four, and so the first place being at the Furka Pass, which is in south central Switzerland, and this is where that that chase is with uh, on that really windy road 
So Guy Hamilton said, during the course of filming, I had to sneak off and search the whole of Switzerland in one weekend to find a wiggly road where Bond could tail Goldfinger. It's excellent. It's it, what, what a perfect place to find. It, everything is still the same, so you can go and visit it. It all looks the same now. It's also where that iconic picture, and I've got this picture on my wall, um, of Connery leaning against the Aston Martin. Uh, that's where that was taken uh, on the Furka Pass. Um, also shot there was where they go to the fueling station, a place called Aurora in Andermatt in Switzerland. And it actually closed on the fifth, well, in the fiftieth year anniversary of the film in twenty fourteen, because it was sort of so run down. It was more expensive to to uh, refurbish it, which is a shame because you know they could have really played on the fact that it's in Goldfinger. But there we go, Switzerland. I read that so, um, Harry's Harry's wife was going to make a cameo in that scene as well. Yeah, she was going to work in the fuel station. Yeah, but did yeah. He, I think it caused problems with Cubby or something, and uh, he 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 demanded that they cut it. Okay, so on so on to the big thing, Fort Knox. We've mentioned this many times already, so a few of these uh, things that I'm probably going to talk about we've already mentioned. But Fort Knox is obviously a pretty hard place to get into in the US, and hardly anybody has ever seen the inside of Fort Knox. Broccoli managed to pull a few strings to get access to the area of Fort Knox. He um, he had a friend who was called Lieutenant Colonel Charles Russian, um, but also he had connections, of course, uh, with um, Kennedy because Kennedy was a massive fan of the Bond books. So Ken Adams only got permission to fly over it once to take a look at what it looked like. And he said as he was flying over it that it was actually really frightening because they actually have machine guns on the roof of it to take down planes that are trying to get into to Fort Knox so he didn't really get to see a lot of Fort Knox when he was going over um, the scenes where uh, Pussy Galore's Flying Circus um, are flying over Fort Knox they were only allowed to fly above 3,000 feet to do that so Hamilton said it was hopeless because obviously it's too far away to film anything you could barely see them it would be ridiculous so they actually flew at about 500 feet and apparently the military went absolutely mental about that because they'd you know they've got these really strict rules about it so it was quite a tough tough scene to film and various other bits the scenes of people fainting because of the uh, gas that was actually the same soldiers every time just moving to different locations around the outskirts of Fort Knox to look like there are lots of people falling over um, I, I need to check that to see if you can actually see the faces of them so as you know all of the sets for Fort Knox. Uh, the interiors were designed by Ken Adams and they were filmed at Pinewood Studios and it was all just straight out of his imagination. So, he, And he was really pleased by this because as you can imagine from Ken Adam, he likes to use his imagination when he comes up with these sets and you don't want to be confined by what things actually look like. So it's like a dream for Ken Adam to just be told, come up with what you would think Fort Knox looks, looks like. And it's a place that everybody knows about. So you, everyone could kind of imagine what it might look like inside. And I think he came up with a really good way of doing that, which was piles and piles of gold behind gold bars. But he said that I think it was in the, the British banking uh, buildings. I'm not sure which one it was, but that he'd seen what gold looked like when it was stacked in a building. And it did not look like it does in Fort Knox. It's it's done in a much more sort of boring way. Bank of England vaults, that's right. And he said it's not stacked very high and it's quite underwhelming when you see it. So that wouldn't look to, uh, looked as good and he pulled that um, together and it looked fantastic. He also says that they every time they drove anywhere near the building, a loud, people would be shouting at them through a loud hailer, warning them to get away. So it wasn't the easiest place to, to, film, to film scenes at. 
He also came up with this cathedral-type design, which you see inside Fort Knox, which was all his own um, his own creation. In fact, Saltzman didn't like it. He said it, it, it resembled a prison, so he wasn't keen on it. But Hamilton liked it, so it ended up staying and built. they, they built the set. Uh, the comptroller of Fort Knox sent a letter to Ken Adam and the production team complimenting them on their imaginative depiction of the vault, which is a pretty nice... Um, thing to get after creating that uh, and really interesting the United Artists got a number of letters from people being really angry saying how the hell could the British film unit get into Fort Knox when nobody else is allowed to get in there <laughs> um, and the set at Pinewood interestingly had to have a 24 hour guard to keep um, to sort of protect the the set because the gold bar props were so realistic so they thought that people would come in to steal all these gold bars in, in Pinewood when in fact they, they weren't real. Uh, another element as well of that scene is the atomic device, another really interesting um, design from Ken Adam. And Hamilton requested that the special effects crew come up with a new idea to for a realistic looking like, bomb device. I'm not sure how realistic it actually looks. Probably looked fairly realistic back in the day because nobody knew what those looked like. Um, but apparently technician Bert Luxford... I don't know who that technician is, but he um, described the end result as looking like an engineering work. Uh, and it had a spinning engine, a chronometer and other decorative pieces. So that Fort Knox, that whole sequence is just fantastic. And uh, when it comes to sets, that interior is just absolutely brilliant. It's just so big. I think there must be like seven sets of stairs that they run down. That, that stupid scene where um, he's running, a, r- running after odd job. They keep slipping around and there's that squeaking noise with their <laughs> shoes all the time. Yeah. Um, that's just fantastic. And it, the scale of that is just phenomenal. I don't think you'd ever see anything like that these days. It's um, it's massive and he gets a lift down. It tracks the lift going down through the yeah. set. And yeah. you just think, this is a film set with a lift in it. It's mad. Yeah. If there's anything that really shows you how the Bond series in the early days has been elevated with budget... Yes, that sequence. (laughs) (laughs) Just one thing to add before we move on about Fort Knox is that um, before, like just a few weeks before they'd finished, uh, before they were due to put the film in cinemas, they um, decided they needed some more shots from actual Fort Knox. So they flew over there um, to get some fill-in shots um, to put in. I think it's of, it might even be of Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. I need to check that, but... um, yeah, when <laughs> when they brought it back, John Barry talks about how he'd basically just spent like months working on the score to like pr- the precise second, and they came back and said, "Oh, we need to to put a few more frames of sound in because um, we've shot some extra bits and bobs." And he just basically had to start again. But I don't know if you remember that final sequence, but there's some really good bits where it's just like percussive drumming to build up the tension, and that's basically what he did. He just <laughs> recorded these drums uh-huh. to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, smarter. Uh, Work smart, not hard. I guess that's the motto there. Uh, So one last thing before we wrap up the production section was that Ian Fleming, who had visited the set while it was in production, he sadly passed away on August 12th, 1964, age 56. We covered this on um, our Ian Fleming episode, of course. Uh, But Sean Connery was away in Italy with Diane, who was shooting a film with Rex Harrison there, um, his wife Diane. Reportedly, he was playing golf when he found out and they, uh, him and Rex Harrison played an extra 18 holes with Penfold Hearts. And Connery said it seemed appropriate. I think Ian would have liked that. Sadly, obviously, Ian Fleming never got to see Goldfinger um, and who knows what he would have thought of it. But I think he, he would have enjoyed it, I think. 
So into post-production, um, we've mentioned uh, in this episode, we've also covered John Barry, but he he was back uh, composing another another Bond score. And so this one this one uses uh, there's a lot of use of the brass in an effort to make it sound give it that gold sound especially when Jill Masterson uh, is lying on the bed covered in gold and and that was the whole thing he was going for the very brassy sound and it is an excellent a really effective use of music to drive the story and and sort of sort of help show what's going on with the use of sound effects so much so that it won an Academy Award for Best Sound Editing. And then the album itself of the score, it reached number one and spent 70 weeks on the top 200 in, in the US. John Barry says, of all the Bond scores I did, Goldfinger remains my favourite. And after Goldfinger, we would literally look at the hit parade to choose a singer for the next film. After Doctor No, the next film was from Russia with Love and they wanted Lionel Bart to do the song and send me and me to do the score. But Goldfinger came up. I said, I want to do the whole thing and I want to integrate the song. So it was a big part of the song and I needed to get a singer. Well, I don't think anyone in the world who's into movies doesn't know this song. No, um, I think you obviously- can move on. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I am almost going to move on because we talked at length about Shirley Bassey and her work on the various Bond films that she's done. But this was the one that started all. So she was brought in to sing the the main song to Goldfinger and pretty much established the, the style that went on for many, many Bond films thereafter. Not only um, her own ones, because she was so popular in singing Goldfinger song that they brought her back for two more so she also did Diamonds Are Forever and Moonraker um, but that style that she added to the song has actually been sort of replicated not just by by her but by very various other singers that have that have done Bond soundtracks so off the top of my head um, Tina Turner's GoldenEye is almost a direct copy of that same style the music was composed by John Barry, as we know, um, and the lyrics were by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus. Anthony Newley actually recorded um, some versions of the song, uh, and I believe he was possibly going to sing it on 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 the so- on on the actual for the soundtrack before they picked up Shirley Bassey to do it. As I say, we've been through this in enormous depth before. Um, this 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 song uses loads of brass uh, and also incorporates the Bond theme um, from Doctor No into it. So yeah, it it did really well. Um, it's one of the biggest rated Bond soundtracks that was ever released. The the album topped the Billboard 200 chart, but the single itself um, was really successful. It came to number eight, uh, got number number eight in the Billboard Hot 100 in the US, and uh, twenty. Uh, it was number twenty one in the UK chart. So not massive, but pretty pretty good for a a Bond soundtrack at that time. Yeah, I mean, its chart success is, is nothing compared to its, its longevity, is it? It's, uh, mm-hmm. You only need to hear, like, two bars from that that song and you straight away know exactly what the song is and you can vi- envision the film in your head. Yeah. And one thing that springs to mind when you hear that music is the titles. Um, now, as we know, Robert Brownjohn uh, is on uh, title duties on this one. So it's not Morris Binder. Um, and Robert Brownjohn had done From Russia With Love. We did a, a, an episode with uh, about Robert Brownjohn. So I'll try not to, to duplicate too much stuff. 
But basically, they moved the the titles of Goldfinger were an evolution of what they did for, with From Russia with Love. From Russia with Love, if you remember, they shone the credits onto a body, and in this one, they shone the credits, but also moving scenes from the film as well. And so, interestingly, it shows clips from Goldfinger, but also uh, has some stuff from From Russia with Love as well. There's a, the, the, a clip from a heli- the helicopter chase at the end of um, from, from Russia with Love is is on there as well, and it's all being projected onto the gold painted body of Margaret Nolan, who plays Dink in the film. Uh, the titles were shot at Brown, Robert Brown John's studio in Fulham, and they took about a week to do. And he was assisted by a lighting cameraman, David Watkins, editor Hugh Raggett, and production manager Trevor Bond. Now, David Watkins, talking about this later on, said, and talked about Robert John referring to him as BJ. He said BJ was like an excited child taking alter, alternately one colour of pills for up and another for down from a Georgian sil- silver snuff box. He was continually exhorting the crew to get a move on. So, uh, yeah, quite a character, this Robert Brown, John. Some memorable moments, I think, in the title, which make it stand out. You, when it projects Odd Job's face onto the, fa- the the face of Margaret Nolan, I think that's a great moment. You've got the bit where the uh, DB5's license plate goes over her mouth and they change, and that's I think that's a really interesting moment. And there's also a bit where the golf ball goes down the cleavage as well, which uh, it, which is great. There's also a scene that gets projected, which is from Q's lab, which is deleted, um, in which features a, a tricked out post office van. So that's quite interesting in and of itself. Talking about it later, Margaret Nolan said, I had to be painted all over with a bikini on. I was never nude. The whole thing was totally professional. Yeah, I went. it went on for over a week, lying and sitting on this big bench. I couldn't see what they were projecting on me at all. Um, and they also shot uh, the poster during this time as well. And that's it. So um, despite how sensational this uh, the titles were, it passed the film censor. Um, and actually Robert Brownjohn won a British Design and Art Direction Gold Award in 1965 for his work on the titles, which I don't think we well deserved. Well. Yeah, well deserved. And so he was also involved in the making of the posters, very much using the same concept, projecting the images, but these were stills onto the, uh, the the figures painted in gold. So he used, used the, actor, the actor Margaret Nolan. He also designed the poster, and we, I think I mentioned this in the Robert Brown John one, but the poster with uh, the hand is his hand. It's Robert Brown John's hand. Um, and then it's got the characters, James Bond and Pussy Galore, projected onto that. Um, and the tagline for this film was, James Bond is back in action. Everything he touches turns to excitement. Fantastic. Memorable memorable you can picture it in your head we've we've lost the hand-drawn ones but it's uh it's just stylistically a, a, a different route to go down but uh, i i had I, when I, I was at uni i had a massive goldfinger poster up in the in the middle of my wall and nobody i went to uni with was a fan of bond so um looked like a bit of a loser actually <laughs> but, uh, still who's laughing now <laughs> they are yeah. They're still laughing. Yeah, go, go. yeah, yeah. Moving on to the release of Goldfinger, um, the premiere. This is a bit of an interesting one. Normally, I talk about the premiere, and I just mentioned which royalty were there. But something actually happened at the premiere for Goldfinger. It, it was at the Odeon Leicester Square um, uh, in 1964 in September, and at the there was a bit of a ruckus. At the time, so Cinematograph Weekly reported that um, 5,000 fans fought the police outside the Odeon Theatre 
And there were almost like riots. And the massive glass door of the theatre was shattered and police reinforcements had to be sent for. So you can see that people were getting quite into bond by this point. This is, uh, if, if that's, that's, I mean, it's not good publicity, but it's a pretty good sign that um, they're doing a good job with the Bond series. Uh, Sean Connery didn't attend the premiere because he was filming The Hill in Spain. Uh, Anna Blackman was there, though, and she was a big deal at the time. She was she was one of the biggest um, stars that they'd had in the series up until this point. So she drew massive crowds, um, partly just because of The Avengers, which was enormous at the time. And she had to be rescued by police as well because of the over-enthusiastic fans that were um, desperate to get her attention. Uh, Shirley Eaton was there, Gertfried was there, uh, uh, um, Broccoli was there, and Saltzman. Uh, and then afterwards, Honor Blackman went on a tour uh, of the rank premiere showcase cinemas around uh, London. Um, and yeah, just got mobbed every time she went to, to, to see one of these places. And um, you don't really see that these days, do you? The, one of the big stars going around doing like a tour of the cinemas. That'd be quite nice. Don't think anybody would be that bothered though. Um, the United States premiere happened in December. So uh, a few months after at the DeMille Theatre in New York. Uh, and by all accounts, everyone liked the film when they saw it. So um just before I go on to the critical response, there were a couple of changes made to the film uh, before it hit uh, or after it hit cinemas. So did you know that when the countdown originally stopped at the end, it originally stopped at 003, but yeah. that was changed to 007? Um, yeah, because the dialogue doesn't make sense. Yes. Um, and then also the end titles were changed from James Bond will return in Honor Majesty's Secret Service to James Bond will, will return in Thunderball. Of course, yes. Yes, so that was changed as well. But anyway, reviews were warm. Daily News said, It's phenomenal, a rare case in film history where that a a series projecting the same character with the same star improves as it goes along. The James Bond movies do. The first Doctor No was good. The second from Russia with Love was better. The best and wildest is Goldfinger. Um, Not sure what they thought about Thunderball or You Only Live Twice or Diamonds Are Forever, though. Not everyone was impressed, though. The New York Times said 007 is slipping, or rather his scriptwriters are. They are involving him more and more with gadgets and less and less with girls. This is tediously apparent in Goldfinger. What's their point? (laughs) They wanted more girls than gadgets. Yeah, I think, well, to be fair, the gadgets go, this is where, this is the, the tipping point, isn't it, with the gadgets? Because they go from a attache case to a, an entire car, which when you think about it is mental. Yeah, so I suppose. You can, you can sort of see that. And then as it goes but along. Yeah, but what's the point about the girls? Well, I think they just wanted That's more That's a strange old and, old and day view. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Writing in The Guardian, Ian Wright, not that one, he said the actors become gadgets uh, and superhuman become commonplace. When Bond can do anything, he loses his point. The film becomes a costly tour de force, a gigantic firework display, expensive purposelessness. Get lost, righty. Yeah, stick to football, mate. God knows what he would have made a die another day. I'd love to see, uh, see him take that one on. But as always, Roger Ebert, the voice of reason... Writing in 1999, he said, of all the Bonds, Goldfinger is the best and can stand as a surrogate for the others. If it is not a great film, it is great entertainment and contains all the elements of the Bond formula that would work again and again. And currently, the review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes has it at a 99% approval rating. Too low. <laughs> <laughs> and it was obviously a box office smash. Um, it, 
interestingly, it was the first Bond film to be released in the UK and the US in the same year. So previously, you know, they're having all those weird sort of delayed releases um, in America. So the budget itself was recouped in only two weeks and it absolutely smashed box office records. So successful that the DeMille Theatre in New York that you mentioned had to stay open 24 hours a day. So in terms of the uh, finishing figures for the box office, $23 million in the US and $46 million worldwide. Well, and everything he touches turns to excitement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that happen. If that was actually a power that he had. Turned to excitement, yeah. Um, and it's had a couple of re-releases, one in 2007 and then uh, November 2020 after Connery's death. Oh, we saw it last year, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a playing in repertory theatre, isn't it? Is that what they call it? Mm. I don't know. It is fantastic on the big screen, though. It makes such a difference. Yeah, it really does. I'd like to see it at IMAX. That'd be good. Mm. Oh, yeah. That brass. Uh, so the release didn't end there. I'm not going to go into too much detail about this because... Uh, the DB5 was one of the stars of the film, I think it's safe to say, and became a star of the pretty much, uh, well, not all of the ones afterwards, but most of them. And to promote the film, the two Aston Martin DB5s that were in the film uh, went to the New York World's Fair, um, where they called it the most famous car in the world. Uh, it had a massive effect on the sales of um, Aston Martin DB5s. And uh, as a result, Corgi Toys began a decade decades-long relationship with the Bond franchise, producing models of the car, which became the biggest selling toy of 1964. Um, again, we talked a lot about Aston Martin in the earlier episode. I, I seem to remember that went off quite a while. So if you want to go back and find out more about Aston Martin, go to an earlier episode. So awards. Uh, at the 1965 Academy Awards, Norman Wonstall won the Academy Award for Best Sound Effects Editing, making Goldfinger the first Bond film to receive an Academy Award. Um, John Barry was nominated for a Grammy Award for the Best Score for a Motion Picture, and Ken Adam was nominated at the BAFTAs for Best British Art Direction, which he didn't win, but he did win at BAFTA that year for Best British Art Direction in black and white for Doctor Strangelove. Um, so yeah, an award, an Oscar-winning film, and the first Bond film to win an Oscar. So that's quite a big uh, achievement for it. Let's do some three-word reviews. So as usual, we've asked you on Twitter to submit those three-word reviews, and uh, I'm just going to handpick some of the some of the ones that you've you've been saying. This one from Clark Mayer. He's the man. Yes. Sam W. Samcap. On Twitter, Sean's second best. Second Interest, best. Interesting. interesting. To, yeah. Tim Brown says the gold standard. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, the Futurist says crotch in danger. Yes. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. In not a review, though. It's not just a review. A I know you, you have big beef with the non-reviews, don't you? <laughs> well, you know, just you set, a, set a challenge and... Okay, well, you you like Ryan's then. Ryan uh, Ryan's put shiny yet dull. Hmm, interesting. There mm, you go. That is interesting. Thought-provoking, in fact. Yeah. Uh, Casino Royale 007 put number one Bond. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're that. right. You're completely right. Yeah, spot on. V dot set the bar. 
That's what V dot said. That's clever. The bar. That's yes. clever. Yes. D- double in your end. Yeah, like and then friend of the show, Nikolai Quack, has put iconic but flawed, and uh, goes on to uh, elaborate. One of my more unpopular opinions in the fandom. I don't love it, and prefer both from Russia with Love and Doctor No to it. Yeah. If, if he th- was going to pick any two to prefer, th- then they're, they're good the ones two. to go for. Yeah. yeah. So what do we think? I'll go last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is... I mean, the, the thing to, that, that you say about this one is that it set the template for all the future Bond films, right? So we had Doctor No, we had From Russia With Love, but this was the one that really changed things up. Bond is... He's more sophisticated. He's more elegant. He's mm. a uh, suave, refined character. He's so almost self-aware in this film so you've got that change which happens to the film before they were just spy films now they're james bond films right you've got q becoming uh bonds basically as john cork describes it uh merlin to kit bonds king arthur and that is such a vital important uh change to the series you know you introduce q he has this funny scene and then he sets up the gadgets for the rest of the film and the gadgets pay off in a in, in an interesting and exciting way it's got the db5 i mean there were cars in the bond films before this but now you've got the db5 and this is the car that they're all every single subsequent james bond film has to match up to and then uh, as mentioned before you've got the killer triumvirate of goldfinger odd job and pussy galore just three of the best supporting characters you could wish for in a James Bond film. Just the legacy and the reputation of this film cannot be um, underserved, I don't think. Um, and and obviously we saw the results of that with the, the spy boom that came afterwards and, and, and the fact that the one that followed it, Thunderball, was the biggest Bond film of all time and still is adjusted for inflation. Is that right? I can't remember. But it's just massive. This film is is massive. There's no way of, of, of cutting it any other way, I don't think. I mean, yeah. But there's not a lot out to say, and I'm sitting here trying to think of negatives about it. I can't. I just... Uh, it's it's all T- positive Tilly stuff. Masterson. Yeah, all right. Okay, Tilly Masterson. But <laughs> but I, I just... It's, uh, it is as close to as perfect, I think, you can get. Um. One thing is obviously the way that Bond overcomes um, Pussy Galore's resistance to him. <laughs> I think that is, yeah, is that's problematic. An issue. That's yes. an issue. Mm. Um, it's it ages the film, I think. Um, but again, it's just it's a very small moment. There are worse the Bonds Bond films commit much worse crimes later down the line. I think. Mm. Yeah, it's just absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I, I I don't just put it down as my favourite Bond film. I put it down as one of my like top five favourite films of all time. I talk a lot about the perfect film, like Back to the Future, and Goldfinger is just. I mean, apart from Tilly Masson, it is just perfect. They've just hit. <laughs> they've just got it all right, and it's so smooth. I think it's, it's, it's. You get it with a few of the Bond, the different Bond actors, where they have a peak. And I think it's almost—it's almost like the Bond curse, really. That it takes three films for the for the actor to really find his stride, and mm-hmm. you see—you can always see where the actors found their stride. Not with, maybe not with Dalton, didn't really get a chance. But the ones that have done a few films, you can really see where they find their stride. And and this is this is it for Connery. It's just absolutely fantastic, and 
it loses it a bit when it comes to Thunderball because he just he's just lost a bit of that. He's still got the excitement of being involved in it. He still wants to do it, but he's got the confidence as well, and it just comes across so well. He's also a much better actor in this one as well. You can just feel he he knows what he's doing. He's also getting those other roles like Marnie and things, so he feels mm-hmm. like a, a proper actor. So everything's just come into play in Goldeneye. It just works perfectly. But not, it's not just the acting; it's everything. The soundtrack the settings it's like everyone who was involved in this film did their job perfectly um so yeah it's just yeah absolute winner for me i've been i'm I'm sad that we've now done goldfinger and won't get to do it again that's it you're quitting the podcast now aren't you that's you done i'm trying to i'm working out what what what, what, i remember when we started doing the podcast we went through the first like the first three films alphabetically and you know they weren't with the first three a view to a kill. kill yeah Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino Royale. Royale. Yeah. <laughs> and Casino Royale 67. Yeah. So yeah. I remember at that point, I was kind of thinking, oh, when are we getting the good ones? But now... We've had yeah. the good ones. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're going back down now. I'm not turning up next week. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else... There, there isn't that much else to say about Gold Goldfinger. Um, I think that one, one thing I, I noticed recently watching it is, is how superb the editing is in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in cranking up the tension, I know it's something we talked about in from Russia with Love and with Doctor No, but um, Peter Hunt, his uh, editing is is terrific, um, and the way it cuts together the special effects um, and the different locations, like there's bits where the bit where um, they're basically chasing uh, Bond is chasing Goldfinger in Switzerland. That goes from being in Switzerland to being in England, being shot in England, and you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the action pieces, set pieces all come together so beautifully in this. It's um, It really is the gold standard. Um, I, so. I, I've just realised we've got through the whole Goldfinger podcast and we haven't mentioned uh, Mint Julep once. <laughs> oh, you've just done it now. We should have got, all had a Mint Julep whilst doing it. <laughs> what a shame. What a shame. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Missed opportunity indeed. So... Wheatley, it's time for your worst section. <laughs> yeah. Most pointless section, the ranking, the official James Bond A to Z ranking. Yeah. So if you're listening to this episode and you haven't listened to any other episodes, we're basically going through the James Bond films and the people who made them in alphabetical order. So it means that Goldfinger, the, this film, is the ninth film, sorry, the tenth film special that we've covered. Um. And so as we've gone along, we've ranked the films in a completely uh, arbitrary way <laughs> um, in that there are it's our favourites, basically. And it's a mixture of favourites with best. And it makes Wheatley angry every time we do it. They but get I, the gist. They but, get the gist. Yeah, but but you sense, don't. <laughs> you don't. But I sense that uh, Wheatley, for you, this one's going to be quite an easy one. So I'll just well, to run... be honest, if you two don't pick this as number one, I will fight you. <laughs> right so let's run through the rankings as they stand number nine casino royale 67 number eight diamonds are forever number seven die another day number six a view to a kill number five for your eyes only number four casino royale number three golden eye number two dr no number one from russia with love i will go first and i will say that this is the number one james bond film at this stage brendan i'm scared of, of Wheatley. Oh, God. oh come on. And You're I'm, not putting like eighth, are you? <laughs> Behind a view to a kill. <laughs> I'm I'm putting it in number two. And and I know you're going to hate me for that. 
Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's democracy. Don't care. <laughs> uh, well, no, yeah, because anybody who loves the Connery films, there's. I've heard many people say they prefer From Rush With Love to Goldfinger, and I can see those 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 mm. arguments. I can see why you do that because they are both very different films in a lot of ways, but. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's. I, there's probably a time where I what might have said from Rush with Love because it's got elements to it that, and and it's also it's a good point actually that Goldfinger changed the style, and if they'd continued with the style of Rush with Love with Golden Golden Goldfinger, it yeah. might have been just as good in just a different style. So yeah, mm-hmm. there's definitely a. They might have lost even with those reviews you were just talking about, Butler. People didn't like the fact that they went down this route, which was more accessible to people but lost a bit of the sort of realism and, uh, and spy genre style to it. So, yeah. That's, you're that's, you're putting that's the number one, aren't you? Me? Yeah. What, a Goldfinger? Yeah. Obviously I'm putting it number one. Oh, I thought you, <laughs> thought you might throw a little curveball there. No, no. Look, but there is an argument for it. It's not, it's not as, as obvious. as. Look, as... Look, let me just uh, support my, uh, my thinking. Is It's not like From Russia With Love is miles and miles ahead. What I'm thinking is... They're two. They're my two favourite, and they're very hard to to pick up. You know, a number one and a number two. But Look, me and Butler know why you've done it to to try and rile me <laughs> and get me into an argument about it. And it's not like it's going to work because he's getting revenge for go- for you putting Goldeneye so low. Yeah, well, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's still going at number one. Is wow. it? I think yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Well, we've overruled you, Brendan. I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh. From so, our very scientific way of ranking these. Yeah, well, just just you wait. Just you wait until we get to one uh, one you like. I'm not bothered about the rest of them. <laughs> Stick them where you want. <laughs> Randomly generate them. I don't care. I've got my one at number one. I'm happy now. Uh, okay. Well, so, there we have it. Uh, so we have a new number one. I think it's... Is it the third? No. I was, yeah, it's like the... the the, the third, third out of the third, last four, isn't it? Yeah, the third out of yeah. the last four have taken number one. So we've had a really, really, really good run. Yeah, just to say, if you haven't listened to any of our other episodes, then we've got episodes on all those films we've just mentioned um, that you can listen back to. And uh, also we have our other episode styles, which is the letter episodes. So yeah, our next film special will be Licensed to Kill, but it's a, it's a little way off yet. But before we get there, we've got letters on. We've got episodes on the letters H and I, and that will be covering uh, some of the key creatives whose names surnames begin with H. And then we've got the J, K, and L episodes, and then we'll be talking about Mr. George Lazenby. Then License to Kill, then Live and Let Die, and blah blah blah. Uh, the next film special after the L is Moonraker. So that's I'm looking forward to do some more Roger Moore ones. We've only done one Roger Moore film, which is quite amazing, what? really. That's madness. Oh. I'm I'm off for all of those. Um, but if uh, yeah you've enjoyed this podcast then please give us a, a rating on Spotify and on iTunes it always helps the show and if you want to get in touch with a correction or anything you want to add then please email the show on podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk we love getting your emails and uh, we will send you a James Bond 8 z podcast sticker if you send us a nice email and if you want to get Not us on if you social... send us a, a bad one. Well, yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're suggesting there? Don't send us a bad one. If it's one. a complaint, you won't get a sticker. You might not. No, you might do. <laughs> you probably will do. Um, and if you want to uh, find us on social media, Brendan. 
at James Bond A to Z on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Yes. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, James Bond A to Z will return next week. Cheers. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.